0: The reading this morning is to be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, which you'll find on page 991 in the Church Bibles. Matthew, chapter 23, beginning to read at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called Rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Um, My daughter doesn't normally ask me on a Sunday morning what I'm preaching on, Uh, but this morning she did. I said, this is what I'm preaching on. And so she promptly went onto the internet to lots of of funny stories about bullying. You'll be relieved to know that that's not where I'm going uh, this morning, but it is quite serious, the passage we've got in front of us this morning. I don't know whether a number of you or any of you are film buffs, but a number of years ago, um, there was a film came out. In, it was actually in 2015, and it won the best film, the best Oscar, um, as part of the film awards in 2015 called Spotlight. Um, it's a story of a group of investigative reporters from the Boston Globe who go gradually go and look in the Boston diocese to find that actually a whole load of Catholic priests have systematically abused and molested children over decades. It's a harrowing and, but also powerful film about that. The abuse was known by the Catholic Church at the time, but was swept under the carpet. A few weeks ago, I don't know whether a number of you have seen on the BBC, there was a documentary uh, that was a two-part documentary about the child abuse here in England uh, that was done, that was uh, undertaken by a bishop called, uh, an Anglican bishop called Peter Ball. It's actually a harrowing and horrendous watch. This is in the church in the name of God. I know we don't like to look at darkness. I don't like, think many of us think that that's okay, but we also need to be aware and not naive. See, actually in our culture, stories of abuse of power, if you look at newspapers, if you look at the internet, are everywhere. Actually, it's a great thing in our culture at the minute. So whether it's the Me Too generation, the Me Too thing, whether it's greed of political leaders, both here but also across the globe, where we look at modern slavery, whether we look at some of the businesses and some of the business practices across the globe and certain people, whether it's stories like the ones I've just talked about of child abuse, or being titillated by the latest Donald Trump Story, actually, abuse of power is everywhere. And actually, everybody recognizes it, actually, outside the church, too. And actually, damage done by leaders in the church who abuse power, manipulating, bullying, dominating, controlling, and using people for their own ends and their own ministry are a curse on the church. So this morning, as part of this series, I do want to be really straight about a number of things and actually face up to. As part of talking about healing, we've got to recognize that some things are broken and actually face up to that. And actually, there'll be a number of people here who would say, actually, I have been significantly wounded by the church, by previous leaders, by certain leaders, You know, and actually in this broken and sinful world that all of us live in, all of us carry relational wounds from our family, from our childhood, from broken romances, some of which go back decades but still affect the way we relate to people, from bad experiences at work. We carry the wounds of making terrible choices for ourselves that are entirely ours, and we consistently make those same choices. And also from the fact that we've longed for a certain future. We've dreamed of a a way, a future that we felt was ours and our right, and it's not turned out that way. And it dogs our life continually. So as we talk about healing and restoration, where do we find healing and restoration? Are we aware of actually the brokenness that both is in our society, but also in us as part of living in this world. And this morning, I'm going to think about the church first and face up to that a bit. Uh, and then we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, look at some other angles on it too. So as I begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to recognize this morning afresh in my own need, my own vulnerability, my own failures, my own faults, my own sin, And recognize that you're gracious and you're compassionate, you're forgiving, you're healing. You love to restore. You love it to see restoration in our lives. And Father, I pray in our own vulnerability this morning that we'd start to have the courage to allow you to get at work in some of the dark places of our lives that actually we'd be a place of welcome and a safe place of welcome where people can find healing and restoration. Any people, however dark the experiences they've been through, there is hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I look at this text, I just want to lay a few things out this morning. Um, Not everything that's said or done in the church that you find difficult or, or hard is actually abusive. It's pretty rare if you've been in the church a while to find a vicar of some kind who hasn't been accused of abuse of some kind or other over their life and their ministry. So I need to say that not everything that we might think is uncomfortable is abuse. You know, as we look at God's word and as we seek to find what God requires of our lives, and actually if we do that with grace, but if we also do it with a pursuit of God's truth, then actually that isn't abuse. But we long to hold grace and hold truth together at the same time. It's obviously also true to say, and many of you may be able to attest to this as well, is that it's not always leaders or church leaders or people who lead in different groups in church who are the ones who abuse people. Sometimes the shepherds, the group leaders, are the ones who are abused by other people. Leaders over many years have learned that sheep bite. Sheep bite. And the number of of rude and offensive communications, letters, emails, have littered church history. As actually, we long to see our will done. We long to see God's will done, but ultimately, most of the time, it's really about seeing our will done. And actually, I'm not going to apologize for the uncompromising way that Jesus addresses in this passage the problem. He doesn't shirk it. He doesn't go round it. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't run from it. He faces it. And there's a seriousness to the language Jesus used that is shocking in many ways. But also we need to be not naive. We need to want to grow and be a place where we don't damage each other. I have no longing to damage you. I know while I've been here, I will have damaged some of you. When I've known that, I've sought to apologize to people. And ask your forgiveness. But we long to be a place where we can be, a place where people can come and find restoration and healing, to be the bride of Christ that God calls us to be in Walcott in 2020. And so we're going to go through this passage um, through the different sections. You might want to have it open in front of you just to look at it as I go through this. I'm going to start in verses, verses 1 and 4. Firstly, I'm going to talk about five characteristics in this passage about what abusive churches look like. Firstly, abusive churches weigh people down. Jesus is comparing the religious leaders of his day. And he's saying to them, what you're doing is you're like, like donkeys, where people tie, are tying enormous loads to donkeys, in which you couldn't see the donkey at all because so much weight, so much stuff was loaded on these donkeys. And he says, That's when you know when people are so weighed down, that's a bad environment, that's a sign that things are wrong. And when you see many people in churches weighed down again and again and again, crushed under the weight of their own expectations or others' expectations, things have gone wrong. So why do churches do it? Why do churches get themselves into that place? Why do we end up looking more legalistic than a place of God's flourishing and growth? Subtly, we can communicate It's well-intentioned that actually to be part of this community, there are 50 things you need to do. The constant narrative is, I'm not good enough. God won't provide. It's a constant narrative of lack and of need and of what people think I, the leader, want. And that's not true to the God we worship. Now, this morning I don't want you to hear me say that I'm not thinking that you need to come to church and worship, that we want you to join into life groups in all the life of this church, that in somehow that, that that's not good, or that actually it's not a good thing to join in and serve with different teens and different groups in different ways, or to give generously, or to invite your friends, or to encourage your friends to come to know the living God. But this constant anxiety of measuring yourself up to something is the very opposite of the good news of Jesus Christ that teaches us that it's not our performance that makes us right with God. It's not our performance that makes us right with God. It's Christ's performance. It's his performance that makes us right with God. A person who puts a faith and trust in the God in and through Jesus. It's his performance that matters. And what do we see in Jesus' life? When we look at his life closely, we see a different leadership style so that we can subtly communicate. Jesus looks at weighed down people. He looks at crushed people. He looks at broken people. And he says to them, and he comes to them, those who are weighed down by the weight of expectation, the bad experiences of this world that has crushed people. And what does he say to them? Come to me. Come to me, all who are labor and are burdened down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will arrive find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, if as a church that somehow we've got so confused and lost, we're not communicating the gentle rhythms of God's grace, the invitation to come and find Jesus and to find rest in him, then we're literally nowhere. Secondly, abusive churches, you'll see in verses five to seven, suck people dry. Jesus is warning about these outward shows of devotion that we can prioritize all the external stuff. And Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of his day in engaging all sorts of religious activity, actually in order for them to meet their own needs for power and admiration for themselves. Jesus is giving a wonderful, a wonderful difference, an example of the difference between godly leadership and abusive leadership on the other. Why? The test is is this. Who's being served here? Who's being served? Whose needs are being met here? The goal of godly, strong, wise, visionary leadership is to encourage, to strengthen, to empower, to lift up those who are being led but abusive leaders use other people and suck them dry. So whenever you see or being part of a community that you see that it's all about the leader receiving the benefits, about their needs being met all the time, that's abusive. They aren't there to empower, to encourage, to serve. They're there to be served. They're for others to give to them. Many of you all know your Bibles very well, but in the Old Testament, um, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, this powerful word of rebuke to the leaders of Ezekiel's day. And he says this in Ezekiel 34 The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says Woe to you, shepherds of Israel! You only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you don't take care of the flock. Leaders who suck people dry. Thirdly, we see in verses 8 to 10 that they're actually keen to shut people up. You must understand that in this day when Jesus is speaking to the rabbis, the rabbi's authority was really unapproachable almost. That actually their word, their view, their thing went. Obedience to your rabbi was absolutely everything. It was unquestioning and unrelenting. You were never allowed even to walk in front of your, the rabbi, you always had to walk behind. You would never initiate a conversation with your rabbi, it was entirely subservient. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying, he saw this exaggerated authority towards people. And he simply said this, stop it. Stop it. There's only one person you should be giving that, that position of absolute authority in your life. That's you have one rabbi for Christ. And that's the same for us here today. We have one person, Jesus Christ. It's often been said that ultimately for all of us as Christians, we live for an audience of one. It's him we need to worry about in the sense of seeking to please in him alone. So when a leader's teachings or a leader's authority or a leader's opinions get somehow mixed up with Christ himself in the eyes of church, it can so easily lead to subtly abusing other people. It may be that a leader's teaching ministry is so great or they just lead loads of people to Christ or they've got an amazing ability to hear from God or they're just a great person of faith who can build great churches or they're just amazing pastorally. But subtly what we do, we end up putting the leader on the pedestal and actually God isn't sovereign, Lord and King. We want to be a church that creates safe places where we don't spend all our time trying to shut people up and to put them to one side. But we want people to find places where they want to encounter the living God, where we want to learn to grow, to engage in Scripture, to learn to pray. We want to be a safe place. And you can always tell when we become an unsafe place, when the language of the people is always, I can't do that because I'll offend X or Y. People have become too much on the pedestal, there's too much fear. One of the reasons for joining um, the Lent time as well as the Lent streams that we're gonna do, but also in doing the difference course is trying to help us as a church to be able to create safe places in which we can talk about stuff that's real and significant, but not not also destroy each other to learn to be a safe place of questioning and growth in faith. One of the writers, the Christian writers, wrote this. He said, if you ever meet a leader who can never acknowledge that they are wrong or won't back down no matter what or won't apologize, apologize sorry, that leader is unsafe. That church is unsafe. And those of us who are married or in relationships or from your experience in your family relationships or your work relationships, well, know that at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. I'll talk about that more in detail next week, and humility at the heart of our faith. Verse thirteen then also says that these religious leaders were cutting people off. And Jesus is levelling the ultimate charge against these religious leaders of his day, saying, you religious leaders, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. I mean, just see how strong this is. You slam the door in the face of those who want to enter. You build a wall that gets between people and God. I mean, just see how tough Jesus is. This is how serious it is. And for us as a church and for me as a leader and for you, many of you who lead different bits in our church, you know, are we assisting people to grow in their relationship with God? Do we want to encourage people to meet with God, to grow with God, to experience God for himself or their selves, to hear from God for yourself? Or really is it all about me and my ministry? This, at the heart, was the battle of the Reformation. Reformers like Luther and Calvin, those who know your church history, protested that church ultimately had gotten in the way of people's relationship with God. And that's what they fought so passionately uh, for too. At the time, the church was teaching, the only way to connect with God is to come through me. You know, you can only be part of this unless you come through this church. But with one voice, the reformer said, church, get out of the way. We're all called to be priests, the priesthood of all believers. We can go directly to God himself through one mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus is leveling at these religious leaders that you're actually cutting off the God-seekers People who want to know more about God, people who want to experience more of his forgiveness, more of his love, who want to hear his voice, people who want to grow in their faith, who want to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then finally we get in verse 15, um, the fifth one, he said locked people in. Abusive churches locked people in. Ultimately, spiritually abusive churches always communicate to people that we alone have the truth. We are the proper biblical church. We're the proper apostolic church. We're the proper prophetic church, or whatever it is that you think. We are the truest, the most faithful to what God really wants for this city. See, the Pharisees here weren't content with just converting people to Judaism they want people to convert to pharisaism. It's not enough to, to, to actually for people to come to God. They want people to be clones of us. You know, I want my disciples. I want my followers. They've completely lost the plot. And when someone says that, when they're the ones who you know, come to you and say, you know, we're the right church. We've got it right what are they actually saying when they say that? What they're really saying in many ways is this, is that you have no alternative but to stay here because we're the right ones. You know, stay here irrespective of whether things are good or bad. Be controlled, be manipulated, be dominated. One of the things I spent quite a bit of time doing in my last church I ended up, just because of a quirk of things, ended walking alongside a whole range of people in our church who had come from very difficult church experiences, I'll put it that way. And they'd been there for a long time, and I'd occasionally say to them, well, why did you stay? And the bottom line was this, is that they said, you know, I was told that that's what I needed to do, that we were the only people who would love you properly, would treat you properly, we were the one true church. You you need to stay and just take all this rubbish and be abused. It's so much damage. I want to reassure you, some of you will be relieved about this, some of you may not be relieved about this, but there isn't going to be an Anglican section in the kingdom of God. There isn't going to be a Baptist section in the kingdom of God. There isn't going to be a Pentecostal section in the kingdom of God. There isn't going to be a Quaker section or a Roman Catholic section. However much your doctrine lives with that. When Jesus sees the church, he sees one church in his world. There's one church in our city now we do things slightly differently. We have slightly different styles, the way we do things. We may have slightly different doctrines about certain things. But ultimately, there is one church representing one God, and one of the reasons we encourage, for example, this Easter, about getting involved in One Good Friday, the kind of uh, the passion narrative in the city, saying, "Is one church, is one group of Christians in the city? This is important to join in." So some of you may be saying, "Call Tim, this is a bit heavy. Um, Some of you may be saying that. Some of you may not be saying that. Um, So actually, if we recognize in some of that some truth, actually, if we recognize where things have gone wrong, how do we then start to find a place of healing and restoration? If we've come from a place of broken church experiences, of being damaged by other people, how do we begin to recognize something different and find restoration. And this morning, we'll look at it a bit more over the coming weeks. I want to start you at Romans 12 too. Slightly strange place to start talking about healing and to start there, but I, I want to encourage you to think about this. It says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that for you, I don't know where you're up to with any of this, you might think I'm just talking rubbish. I think none of this is relevant to me. My experience of church has all been good, Tim. Nobody has done anything nasty to me ever. Well, I'd suggest to you, you've probably not lived in a church. Um, But here's the thing. If you have been damaged you will come here very suspicious. Your natural engagement will be suspicious, thinking, I'm not going to be hurt again. I'm not going to be damaged again. You won't say it, but you'll behave like it. You'll be very tentative. You won't want to trust people. You will have a very closed down way of engaging with people. And actually, most of us can relate to that. For example, if you've had a series of relationships in your sort of romantic relationships and they went wrong, however long ago that was, when it goes wrong, you kind of start to move back, don't you? And say, well, I'm not going to trust my heart to anybody else again. I'm not going to be damaged again. I'm not going to be hurt again. So you've actually got to get to the point where even though you know you're a mess inside, and actually the people around you know that you're a mess, but you might hide it very well, you've actually got to get to the point where you start to think, can I imagine a future free? Can I imagine a future where actually I'm not continually churned up inside, broken? Can I imagine a future in which God would still love me and care for me and have good things in my life? Because actually we need to renew our minds to think, if we're going to have the courage to deal with the dark things in life, whether they're personal, to do with church, or whatever it is, we've got to get to our heads to think, you know, actually, I'm going to start to trust again. God wants me to trust again. Both God, other people, and the church. And that requires us to change our mindset so we can begin to allow God to get to work in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls. And actually, one of the natural reactions, if you've had a load of bad experiences in church, one of the natural reactions today is to say, well, you know, the Jesus chap, he's good. Continue with Jesus. Church, bad. So I'll just hold very lightly To church and many of us do that subconsciously because many of us have been damaged by the church and actually we know it hurts so actually I don't want to be hurt again that's just sort of stupid isn't it but you see we've got a problem as Christians if we take that perspective and the problem is this Unfortunately, scripture doesn't talk about it like that. The New Testament says then we embrace Jesus Christ as our Saviour and our Lord. When we look at God and say, God, save me. I need you, I need your forgiveness. I'm wretched at heart. I've done all this bad stuff in heart. I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. I need to be saved in and through your life, Jesus, and your blood that was shed on the cross for me. Lord Jesus, I need you. And I'm going to trust you and I'll put my trust at the cross of Jesus, that his life and death and his resurrection is sufficient for my sin. That I'm not going to do that and I'm going to trust that. But what Jesus says in that, one of the pictures we find in Scripture, is this, is that Jesus talks about, and Scripture talks about, that a double wedding takes place. That actually as we commit to God, as we commit to Jesus, as we are united to Christ, when you ask God to forgive you and to save you, and you say, yes, that's what I want, I know that's what God's saying to me, I need his saving grace in my life. What we're saying is, as we walk down the aisle, And we come to meet Jesus at the bottom of the aisle, waiting for us. You know, I want to know that Jesus is devoted to me, will love me to the end, that Jesus will forgive me. That's what we say as Christians. But the New Testament also says they're also marrying the church, the bride of Christ, his family. A lot of us say, well, to be honest, I didn't really sign up for that. You know, not sure I quite want that. You know, there are people with funny personalities and weird habits in the church, and that's just the vicar. I don't want that. People who sing too loud or too soft, pingy-sing off-key, people who have strange hobbies. They're nothing like me. People who are a different generation from me. People who are annoying and have bad habits. You know, that's not the deal, surely. But even in vulnerability and weakness, I want to say that the bride of Christ, God's church, is a beautiful bride. There's goodness, there's love, there's freedom, there's growth, there's extraordinary sacrifice and care that we find in God's church. We find his presence, the living God, who comes to us and brings us back to life from death. It's a a wonderful place, a beautiful place of hope, of transformation, of healing, of restoration. And we'll look at that a little bit more at the rest rest of this term too. And I've been part of the church all my life. I've seen the church at its best and its worst, and I mean real worst. I can tell you without reservation that it's the most beautiful gift to me and has been in my life. Not always easy. Not always easy, but it's been extraordinary and continues to be an extraordinary gift even in vulnerability and weakness. The other thing quickly to say is that if we've had bad experiences in the church, it also obviously distorts our view of God who God is. Many of us have that image of our mind that God is somehow a hard taskmaster, constantly on our shoulder, telling us how we failed, telling us how we're not good enough, that it's really disappointing in our performance week after week after week, that we're not really good enough to be followers of Jesus. But what we see in Scripture, that God is the loving Father who runs to greet his errant son, leaving the dignity of his home to greet us, to wrap his arms around us, to forgive us, to celebrate with us, to kiss us, to close us with new clothes, and to have a great party with us. And I don't know what your experience is, I don't know whether you come and think this doesn't relate to me Tim this morning, but what I want to say to you is this, there is mending, there is healing, there is restoration in the church. And ultimately, it's in the arms of a loving father who loves you more than you could ever imagine. There is healing, there is mending to be found in St. Swithin's. And I don't know what your experience is, but if you have been damaged or abused or disappointed by a church or its leaders, or it might be me, God is ready to heal. He's ready to forgive. And he longs to restore you. He longs to restore us. Would you let him in? Would you invite him in? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning that each one of us can make a fresh start with you this day. However bad the experiences may be and however bad this week has been, that we can turn afresh towards you. I want to thank you that we're not a perfect church led by a perfect leader or full of perfect leaders, but a group of people in a church hungry for you and all you are, hungry for your presence, hungry to grow into your likeness, Jesus. Father, thank you for your promise to heal the brokenhearted and to set them free. Father, we thank you that your heart for St. Swithin's is to be a place of restoration, for us to be a church after your own heart. I ask on behalf of the church on behalf of myself, that you would forgive us when we get it very, very wrong. Sorry for the damage I've done, we've done, to your beautiful bride. Where we've not cherished, we've not loved, not cared in a way you would long us to be and for us. I ask by the power of your spirit, would you come afresh and clean us up? In all our vulnerability, would you grow trust again? Would you grow respect afresh? And would you lead us in forgiveness and healing? And Father, I pray for myself, that in all my weakness and vulnerability, and I pray for all of those who lead in different ways, places in this church that the power you have given us in our lives would be safe in our hands that we would have safe hands to live for you help us Father we pray and grow us in Jesus name Amen